They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! Welcome to Feed vs. the Living Dead, the podcast where your host, Feed the Terrible Aussie Jemine, explores the remakes, re-edits, reimaginings, homages, and unofficial follow-ups to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes Morgues and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. This podcast contains coarse language, mature discussions, and plot spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. G'day everyone, this is Beejamide, aka The Terrible Aussie, and welcome to episode 24 of Bee vs. The Living Dead, the podcast where I dissect every remake, re-edit, reimagining, homage, spoof, unofficial follow-up, and so much more to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead Across All Media. Yes, that's right, folks. We're now at the tail end of October when this episode drops. It has been quite a big month for the podcast in between the official episodes of this show and all the bonus episodes that I dropped with film with the filmmakers behind many of the indie remake of Night of the Living Dead. And before we go into this one, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in to all those episodes. I'm glad you all really enjoyed them. And I can promise you that the that the end of October for the show will definitely go out with a bang because not only this episode, I also have something special to announce, which I will announce at the very end of this episode. But in the meantime, though... I am joined by two very special guests, and they're both returning guests as well. And first up, of course, is someone who is my co-host on the many podcasts over at the Super Network. And she also makes her long-awaited return back on the show after appearing on the episode where we discussed the film Rebirth. And that, of course, is the one, the only Super Marcy. Hello, Marcy. How are you? Hello, hello. Good to be back. It has been a little while between me guesting on your show, but uh, that's all good. We need to take a break from podcasting with each other constantly. Exactly, exactly. And plus, you know, when you're not recording with me, Marcy, uh, all the episodes that you do are less uh, less terrible without my presence, just saying. So. I mean, you're usually on any podcast I do, so I think well, I can yeah. only make yours better. Well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so when we team up, I make everything terrible, but you team exactly. come on one of my shows, it's, you just make everything better. That just yeah. is the... <laughs> like the name says, I make everything super. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and also for the fact when I had this movie that we're going to be talking about for this episode mm. on the schedule, you immediately put your name down for it. So, <laughs> but before we get to what the film is, we have our other second special guest and he is making his return after appearing all the way back on the episode where we discussed Mimesis Night of the Living Dead. And that, of course, is Barton Roberts. Hello, Barton, and welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Bede. <laughs> very glad to you... be back. Well, I'm glad you're back as well. And how have things been going with you, Martin? They've been going well. They've been going well. Uh, 
Did you ever get around to watching that uh, Mimesis Nosferatu? I haven't yet, but I've been meaning to. I just haven't had a chance to. I'm going to have to at some point so we can, I can compare how Mimesis Nosferatu compares to the one we reviewed. And also, like, is it a sequel or is it a standalone? These are the many questions I need to find out. Is it, <laughs> is it one that I can do for the show, even though it has vampires? I'm not exactly sure. So those are the yeah, many well, questions. In 20 years, when you finally are able to get through all of the Night of the Living Dead stuff, maybe you can do a Nosferatu podcast. Exactly, exactly. Because <laughs> let's just face it, not Count Orlock has been in a lot of movies and other things over the years, so it only makes sense that uh, I would have to do a podcast so if, at some point once this show has run its course, if it ever does. Um, <laughs> although I won't do them on Dracula because there's way too many Dracula movies and I would, by the time I would get to the tail end of that episode show, it'd be, I'd be 90 years old and there'll yeah. still be more coming out, so <laughs> we'll, leave, we'll leave those ones alone, but... Uh, I'm very glad that both of you are here for the very big major final episode for in honor of the 55th anniversary of Night of the Living Dead. And it only makes sense that we go out with one very big film for this episode. So after this discussing the previous two Return of the Living Dead films for this show, it only it only makes sense to talk about one of the most I would say one of the most underrated entries in the franchise, but I would even just say one of the most underrated zombie films ever. And that, of course, is Return of the Living Dead Free. Hell yeah. Yep. Which I'm very excited about the talk with you both, because like like uh, Marcy, Barton, you put your name down immediately when you saw this one on the, the list. So I know that the three of us are going to have a great discussion on this film because there is a lot in this film to discuss, so we might as well get straight to it and talk about the 1993 horror sequel, Return of the Living Dead Free. They vowed to stay together forever, that their love would never die. But their pledge remain untested. Oh, come on. No problem when the boss's son, remember? until they went looking for a thrill and stumbled on the chilling fact let's proceed that even the dead can go on living they came back to life we gotta get out of here and tonight fate will put their promises <laughs> to the test now that she's dead he's frightened to live without her but bringing her back is terrifying. <gasps> oh, God, Kurt, that was incredible. Let's do it again. Contain it, damn it! Seal it off now! Is that what I'm gonna become? These poor dead bastards crave brains. She bit me, did She gave me something bad. I feel so hungry. <laughs> Never find you down here. What have you done? If she attacks him, he becomes like her. I just get a little confused sometimes. No! Love never dies. Which was directed by Brian Usner 
written by John Penny. This film stars Melinda Clark, J. Trevor Edmund, Kent McCord, Basil Wallace, Sarah Douglas. And the plot summary for this film, which I am reading off IMDb, is having recently witnessed the horrific result of a top secret project to bring the dead back to life, a distraught young youth performs the operation on his girlfriend after she is killed in a motorcycle accident. For all those out there who've listened to the two previous main episodes of the show, you would already know that the first two entries in the Return of the Living Dead franchise were kind of more horror comedy-based film. With, you know, the first one kind of having a good balance between horror and Mm. comedy, while the second film, while still a horror film, it kind of emphasised more on the comedic aspect of the series. However, though, with this third entry, uh, with Brian Usno, the director behind such films as Society, Bride of Reanimator, and so many other horror films, he decided to give it a much more serious approach compared to its predecessors. But the question is, though, is having the total change from a horror comedy to a full-blown, serious, dramatic horror film that has a tragic love story at the center of it work? Or doesn't it? Before we get into our deep discussion on the film, uh, Marcy, I know you have a very special place in your heart for Return of the Living Dead Free, because this is a film that you and I have talked about many times throughout the years, whether it is on our podcast we host together or on when we've guessed it on other people's podcasts and the film gets brought up as a topic of conversation. But uh, Marcy, your initial thoughts on Return of the Living Dead Free. Yeah, so I'll go back a bit Um I guess to explain why this movie has such an impact on me and why I love it so much, spoiler alert. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so when I was a young, impressionable little Marcy, I hadn't really seen many gory, gory horror films. There were probably more, I guess, the more tamer ones, I suppose. But uh, for some reason on my little TV in my bedroom, I had a little channel on there and if I did it just right, I could get, the signal from like the satellite TV in the main room. So when my parents would go to bed, I'd put it on like one of the movie channels and see what I could watch. And one night it was this one. And while the signal wasn't the greatest, it kind of changed my life a little bit because I I saw something that kind of terrified me. It was gross. It just left this impression. I hadn't seen anything like it up until that point. And I was just kind of blown away by by this film. And then I, I would subsequently watch it again uh, on VHS. And it's just kind of been a staple. And I guess I would credit this film with actually getting me into, I guess, more than the tamer horror films. And it's made me into the crazy psycho bitch I am today. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I really love this film. I think that I don't think this would necessarily work as a kind of horror comedy. It works, it has the right tone for what it is. And that we have sort of this teenage love story in the middle, I think really pushes the film forward. And it, it just gets so horrific by the end. You don't know whether you're scared, aroused or both. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But uh, Barton, your initial thoughts on Return of the Living Dead Free. Uh, so as a child of the 90s, I grew up going to the video store all the time. And I just vividly remember seeing the VHS cover mm. with uh, Melinda Clark on the front. And 
as a as a young guy being very like that's really creepy but also really hot and <laughs> um and so it was just this kind of like relic that lived in my mind for a long time and uh, a couple of years ago i finally was just like oh i'm gonna watch this now i, I don't know why i had never gotten around to it i just hadn't um and sat down to watch it and i was like okay cool it, it was just different i didn't know what to expect because i actually saw that before i'd even seen the original return of the living dead and on subsequent watches, I found myself really appreciating it a lot more um, after having also seen the other Return of the Living Dead films. I just think it's a really interesting one. It's it's um, it's so totally different from everything that comes before it in a lot of ways, both in the Return of the Living Dead series and kind of generally. It feels a lot more like it takes a lot of tropes and stuff from kind of um, vampire films in a lot of ways. You know, where they're always like rushing against the clock to stop somebody from fully transforming. And while this doesn't quite do that, it feels like you've got that similar, mm. you know, kind of clock watching tone. And I think it's just one of the things that I really liked about it is the way that you get the insights. And I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit more. Um, but, you know, with her talking about the self-harm and how hurting herself stops the feelings of uh, wanting to eat people, essentially, I think there's some really interesting stuff there that, you know, talk, kind of the idea of self-harm and, and and treating that with actually like a, a pretty surprising amount of maturity and nuance that I, I think you don't even see a lot in movies today, let alone kind of mm. schlocky B-movie horror films. So I think it's just a really interesting movie that, like I said, every time I've watched it since that first one where I was just kind of like, oh, that was interesting. All right, well, I'll watch that again later sometime. You know, every every kind of subsequent watch has been like, oh, man, there's there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on here. And this is actually really smart and fun. And, you know, even though you can obviously see that the budget was not huge, I think it still really does a lot with what it what they had. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, for my thoughts, uh, I have a very interesting relationship with Return of the Living Dead free i believe this might have been the second zombie film i ever saw because i watched return of the living dead 2 first and then went into this one now the second film like i said before is a mm. very silly very comical horror comedy so when i went into this third one i just assumed you know based on what i'd heard from people that the return of the living dead series was more horror comedy than straight up horror i just assumed that this third entry was going to be basically be exactly the same as well <laughs> but yeah. when i went into it i was pretty taken aback and mind you i was probably about 14 15 at the time when i saw this film and i was taken aback by how very dark and serious mm. of a film it was especially compared to the second film but over time having seen it quite a number of few times over the years i definitely have grown to appreciate uh, this entry of the series like it is a very dark and mature take on the zombie film and i like the fact that it does have this sort of tragic teen romance at the center of it that gives the film a lot of heart and soul and also the performances of the two leads melinda clark who mind you mind you i did when i went back to re-watch this film a couple of years ago I forgot that Melinda Clark was in this film because at that point I was sort of more familiar with her for a role on the TV show, The O.C. So when I saw her, she was actually the lead in this movie. I was like, oh, I didn't realize. Yeah, this, that this was, was a, a shock to the system. Like after um, 
like the OC and I think um, Gossip Girl kind mm. of stuff where she's like the the younger but like kind of gold digging type of character and you go back and watch this and it's like holy shit that was her whoa <laughs> indeed indeed and all I kept thinking was the entire time watching this film it's like I don't know why she kind of reminded me a little like young Melinda Clark reminded me a little bit of uh Margot Robbie for some reason but with red hair so I don't know why it's just kind of the feeling I what she looked like in this film but that so, being said though yes, so sorry so Margot Robbie uh to the remake of this movie she can be um, zombie Barbie <laughs> yes 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 you can. Yeah. okay no, I'm Z- into that <laughs> all right we're gonna ring up uh Warner Brothers and uh Greta Gerwig to pitch them a zombie Barbie movie so <laughs> <It's totally happening>. <laughs> <laughs> and it's essentially just a remake of this movie but with Barbie again but that's beside the point but anyway so um <laughs> With that out of the way, um, the movie itself is really, really good. I think it's a, as a sequel, it's very strong, but it even works as a standalone as well. And it, while it does have some elements that do tie it back to the previous entries in the series with the use of the 245 Taroxin and having it referencing a few little things that sort of were brought up in the two previous films, but they're very minor little things. So even if you hadn't seen the first two films, mm. you can go into this film just enjoying it for what it is as a standalone because it mm. just works so well in that regard. And also having Brian Usner, who is a, a very underrated horror director and also no stranger for using very gruesome practical gore in all of his films, but he does it in such a unique way as well compared to other directors when they used gore in films like there's almost like an artistry to his gore scenes and all the zombies and all the other sort of death scenes in this film are so imaginative and creative and it really does make the film feel like like its own thing Mm. and I think you know again having that sort of different tonal shift from the two previous entries really does make it stand on its own as a as a film Mm, yeah definitely because I saw this without having seen the other two and I picked up like pretty much what was going on it's like okay this toxin stuff turns people into zombies brings them back to life kind of stuff and they want to eat brains okay cool so you know that was fine but as you said like the gore and stuff it's so memorable because I I it just burned into my brain just from that first almost grainy watch that I had some of those zombies were so gruesome, like I had not forgotten them since. And when I rewatched it in prep for this, I was sitting there waiting to see those again. Um, because it had been quite a quite a number of years since I had rewatched it. So I was very excited to just have an excuse to watch it again. <laughs> well, we might as well get to the plot summary of this film and do an entire recap of it from beginning to end. So we'll might as well get straight to it. Mm-hmm. So the film. From what I understand, it takes place five years after the events of Return of the Living Dead 2, and we're at a random army base, and we're introduced to the character of of Colonel John Reynolds, played by Kent McCord, and he is there with a few other people within the other government officials and others in the army, including uh, Sarah Douglas, who's best known for her roles in the first two Superman films, which I also forgot she was I in this I forgot she too. was in this too, and I was like, holy shit, she was in this? It's weird because I think she also did this and also Puppet Master 3, I think around the same time as well, because she has a small role in that. So I'm kind of like, 
It's like, oh, Sarah Douglas is in uh, Return of the Living Dead 3. Even though I've seen this movie a few times before, I, I only really took notice of her in this film. What? So, <laughs> so we're introduced to them. And of course, uh, Sarah Douglas. Uh, so they have the canisters of 245 Troxen that have the zombies in them. And of course, like all government officials and the army do, they want to use the zombies for as weapons in future wars. Uh, Sarah Douglas's character of uh, Lieutenant Sinclair wants to control the zombies using this sort of ectoskeletal creation mm. that traps the zombies inside and then it, remotely they can use the zombies to as replacement soldiers. However, Colonel Reynolds, on the other hand, has another alternative method he would like to use the zombies for. So that's pretty much how the film, like, begins and then of course we're introduced to our main couple of the the characters of julie played by melinda clark and as well as kurt played by j trevor edmund they're a couple of high high school teenagers who are deeply in love with each other and i also like the fact that in a way what i took notice of this the first time i watched the film is that when we're introduced to julie for the first time we see her playing around with her lighter and using it to mm. kind of burn her hand which yeah. in a way kind of foreshadows like what she's going to be doing mm. later on in the film kurt turns up to this party that julie's at and tells her that he has stolen his dad's id card to the army base so they're going to go check it out because they believe that the that Kurt's dad and the army are doing ex experimentation on animals. Now, if anything zombie films have taught me, if anyone is going to go to, say, a lab or an army base to kind of stop people what they seemingly think are testing on, on animals, uh, don't do it because you're going to possibly start a zombie apocalypse. But yeah. I digress. Um, mm. <laughs> between this and 28 days later, it's pretty much a given at this point. They go off to the army base. When they get there, they sort of sneak in. And they're easily able to get in. But given right. that Kurt is yep. the... <laughs> Kurt is... The security uh... is pretty lax for a base where they're testing, like, bioweapons yeah. and technology and everything. Like, I, I feel this... like there'd at least be a log or something. But he yeah. just kind of drives up and is like, oh, hey. It's yeah. You'd you, you think, like, with what they're doing, this would have, like, Area 51-style security. But, you know, budget, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly even like when the uh the guard at the gate sort of like sees Cody, he's like oh yeah just go right in <laughs> no worries at all right. but but i'm assuming though like he's already knows who kurt is because he you know his dad is mm. the uh the colonel at the base so it's probably just a given anyway so kurt and julie they go inside the hangar where the laboratory is they go up on top of the the roof of it and look down into the skylight to see what's going on and then of course uh colonel reynolds and the others they're doing experimentations on the zombies so like i said mm. lieutenant sinclair wants to use an ectoskeleton for the zombies but uh colonel reynolds believes by having this little little device that they mm. shoot into zombies heads that can actually control the zombies like bring them they can turn them on and off and also basically control them that mm. way without having to do it's like a yeah it's like an on and off yeah it's like an on and off switch for what they're trying to do yeah exactly yeah. exactly so they do that and at first it seems to work out fine however the zombie who has the weirdest looking like undies i've ever seen in a film <laughs> like it is 
bizarre, but um, <laughs> when are you gonna purchase that outfit, Bead? <laughs> I- I'm not gonna lie, I haven't seen Zardoz, but they almost look like Sean Connery Zardoz undies <laughs> in that. It really in that does. Show. It's a z- <laughs> Zomda Zardoz. I don't know. <laughs> Z- Zomdas, there we go. Um, <laughs> but of course, we get a couple little references to uh previous entries in Return of the Living Dead because one of the other Colonel Reynolds men sort of mentions that the 245 Chiroxin was previously going to be used on the war against marijuana. That definitely didn't work out well. And uh, <laughs> but of course, it got leaked and then created the zombies in 1969. But again, as I stated all the way back on the first Return of the Living Dead episode for this show, that whole thing just annoys me because they talk about how Night of the Living Dead was inspired by that event, but that film came out in 1968, but the event took place in 1969. But I digress. Um, (laughs) (laughs) As this is happening, one of the technicians checks out the zombies. The zombie comes alive, but not he doesn't bite off the technician's fingers. He literally skins fingers off their their bones. So it's just like the bones there. And I thought that was such a really gory, but a creative way Mm. to do that. And then, of course, the zombie attacks a few of the technicians. One of the technicians actually becomes a zombie. And that's kind of one of the big main differences compared to the previous entries in the franchise is the zombies in the other films, if they bite you, you don't necessarily turn into a zombie. The only time you actually turn into a zombie is if you get a dose of the 245 Taroxin. Now, Brian Usner in this film decides to kind of change things around. And so if you do get bitten by a zombie, you still end up getting turned into one regardless. So that's kind of one of the big changes here in terms of how the zombies are portrayed compared to previous entries. So as all this is happening, they manage to stop the zombie. Julie and Kurt get freaked out by this. So they leave and they go back to Kurt's house. They have sex. Uh, Julie is very intrigued by the whole thing. And that's one of the interesting things about Julie as a character is that she is kind of morbid and very obsessed with the idea of death. And she's intrigued by like what happened to that zombie. And they debate whether it actually was just uh, a mental patient or if it was a real zombie. Then, of course, Kurt's dad comes back to the house, finds him there. And Kurt's dad tells him that the experimentation that they've been working on at the base is not working out. So they will have to be moving on to another base very soon. Kurt is not very happy by this. So he tells his dad, he's not going to go. So he decides to leave. So he and Julie get on a bike. They ride off into the sunset, thinking that their whole lives are ahead of them and things are going to change. But that doesn't quite happen because as Julie is kind of messing around with Kurt, a truck comes around the corner they skid off the road and Julie goes flying off the bike and smashes right into a telephone pole, hereditary style, almost hereditary style. Almost. Almost. Like she manages but... to keep her head at least. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And she dies. And then when, once Kurt finds her body, he is absolutely distraught about what happened. So he decides that he's going to revive her with the help of the 245 Taroxin that they saw earlier. So that's pretty much the first act of Mm. the film. And uh, Marcy, your thoughts on this first act of the film? Yeah, look, I actually think it's an interesting way to open the film because it sets everything up, like, very well. We 
uh, we're introduced to the the toxin, we're introduced to the military base, uh, the character relationships, such as like the colonel with the son and all that. And I like kind of how this movie just plain out shows just how ruthless like the, the military is with this stuff. Like this mm-hmm. is going to be like our new kind of bioweapon. It's just so like gruesome. And especially like when things go wrong and they're just still very determined to like, no, this has to happen. And I like the kind of, um, I guess, uh, I'm trying to think of the right words, but they're not coming to me. Kind of what it has to say about that sort of stuff. Like they don't value anybody's lives. They value war and destruction. That We get mm. that from this film and as a, a commentary. It's a clever commentary is what I was trying to say. Mm. Yes. <laughs> well, it's come I'll, to me eventually. <laughs> I'll definitely. But I also think what's interesting about the first half of this film, when we introduce to that zombie who's being experimented on, there are little moments where you actually feel sorry for the zombie because you could tell it is legitimately frightened in these scenes as mm. it's about to be experimented on. And again, that's what makes this entry so different from the previous two ones because the zombies were of course kind of portrayed as villains in the previous installments and as creatures that are terrifying but here yes there's still that but with a lot of the zombies you actually feel for them and what they're and what the military is doing yeah it's um yeah they're not as brainless as they may have been previously um, mm. And I don't say that with a pun because they eat brains, but <laughs> you feel that there's a bit more, like, I guess, depending on when you're revived, like, you remember more, you, that, you know, it just, it kind of opens up a lot and you don't really want to see zombies being experimented on, but I mean, you still don't want zombies to exist because they're fucking scary. Uh, but it's it's a, 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 yeah it's a good way to open it but as we said security is pretty lax at this base but um <laughs> yeah I guess uh after sneaking in I, I don't know why that, that was thrilling for them but apparently it was um mm. and I guess as we said Julie is kind of a goth rock kind of chick and she's into death and all this weird stuff but mm. yeah we get the thing that's gonna like tear them apart with like the colonel saying to Kirk like oh we're gonna have to move and he doesn't want to move because he's got a life he's got his girlfriend or they're just gonna leave so I guess it's a good thing they broke into the base because he can revive her after the motorcycle accident mm. it's a little little coincidental I mean is um, it a good thing <laughs> yeah I don't know um, <laughs> we wouldn't have a movie but yeah exactly. it, it, it sets up a little predictably but I think it still works despite like mm. As soon as, like, he knows, like, he sees she's dead, you're like, okay, he's definitely taking her to that base and reviving her. Um, But I think it's what comes after that as well that is unexpected because we haven't really, like, seen zombies that don't necessarily look like a zombie. And this kind of gave us, like, it's been brought back. It's, you know, I guess reanimated kind of a little bit, but um, I don't think it was quite in the way that this was because you know in that movie especially in like brian usner's ride of reanimator we see like weird things like put together and reanimated so um <laughs> but again i i pre i appreciate a brian usner film definitely definitely and uh uh but your thoughts on the opening of this film uh, i think it's you know it's it, it uses a lot of kind of archetypes and everything just to at least mm. like get you set in to understand exactly what's going on right they kind of the scene where his dad lets him know that they're moving again is very like 
it feels very kind of like cheesy 1980s, like after school special kind of thing. But that's fine because it's not necessarily there to be uh, this perfect dramatic moment. It's there to just get us to the next point, right? To understand that for him, this whole move thing is a life or death kind of thing almost. Um, and, you know, given that the rest of the movie is very much about this love story between him and Julie and kind of the lengths that he's going to go to to save her and protect her, um, you know, it gives you enough information there going on. Um, I think a point that Marcy brought up that I thought was really, uh, really good was about, um, you know, how the, the government wants to use you essentially even after you're dead. And, you know, that's certainly something uh, that we saw here in the U.S. and in a not specifically in that kind of way, but especially I think about the Iraq war in the 2000s, mm. the big uh, policy of stop lossing people. So it was folks, if you aren't familiar with the policy, what it was because of the war, mm. they weren't necessarily getting as many people signing up to join the military as they were. Mm. So what would happen frequently is people who would essentially end their, uh, reach the end of their service contract would basically be pulled back in. They called it stop lossing because they were stopping the loss of soldiers on the field, essentially. And so I think it is, this idea that the military is going to go to mm. whatever lengths they need to go to in order to have soldiers on the field. And, you know, I, I, I don't know that that was necessarily the thought at the time, but it's certainly one of those things where like, right. Art doesn't just take place in a vacuum. It doesn't just mm. exist on its own. And as it goes through time, it can maybe pull different parallels. And I think it's a really interesting one, right? It's a 30 year old movie at this point. Um, and the Iraq war wouldn't start for, uh, a decade after it was made, but it, I think it does have some interesting parallels there. Like I said, especially with that stop loss policy, and I think it's an interesting uh, thing to think about. I mean, I also but, just love how oh, sorry, I was just gonna say, um, oh, go we, we, I, I, yeah, it didn't even occur to me, like you know, being a '93 film when we had Iraq War One, like only a couple of years before that, and then oh, kind sure. of what it says, and then you know that would come up again with the next, like war with what you said with stop loss and that kind of stuff like that's something I, did, I didn't even occur to me so now that you've like brought that up I'm like holy shit there we go <laughs> yeah um and I think the other thing that's uh, one of the other things that I really do like about this is it you know it's it is a a low budget movie uh it is it is cheap it is clearly cheap mm. but uh, I think the one of the reasons why it is clearly cheap is because the all of that money goes into the special effects mm. it mm. looks just as good, if not better, than stuff that we're getting in theaters today. And it is a, a real testament, I think, both to the the uh, expertise of the teams involved and the usage of that budget and, uh, you know, using not knowing how to actually shoot these things. Mm. Um, it, you know, the, the effects in this do not look cheap. It's the it's yeah. the sets where they're going into like the military base. Yeah. It's like they're in a cargo container that looks cheap, but that's great because I, I'm not here for spectacular set design. I mm. want to see some, you know, if you're going to be a zombie film, give me some great effects. And, you know, mm. that, that first one that you were mentioning where it pulls off all the skin on his finger absolutely fits in with that. And then I think the rest of the film obviously um, does a really good job with that. But I, I think mm. this first act does a really good job of kind of setting all the stakes, setting everything in motion, not necessarily trying to like be too high-minded about any of mm. it, but giving you everything you need to like buy in and understand 
yeah. and move on with the rest of the movie. Yeah, I th- I think by the time like you know they have that accident, like you know what's going to happen. But even if you weren't that captured in the film, like by the time that happens, you're like, oh, I'm kind of invested now because I want to see what what's going to happen. Is she going to turn into a zombie? You get all of that in there as well. So it definitely sucks you in big time. Oh, definitely, definitely. And also it does a good job of establishing Julie and Kurt's relationship mm. in this first first act of how in love they are. And, you know, and both um, Melinda Clark and, keeping it in his name. Uh, J. Trevor Edmund. Yes, uh, J. Trevor Edmund, like they have really good chemistry with mm. each other and you really buy their relationship. And then when Kurt finds Julie dead and kind of, just keeps screaming out you can't leave me you can't leave me Mm. you feel his anguish and his pain in that moment and And then yeah i i as we get through further in the movie i think this that this kind of relationship i think taps into a lot of interesting um relationship aspects in general uh Mm. but again like if you were going out with 1993 melinda clark wouldn't you go resurrect her if she accidentally died? Like, I mean, yeah, I, I can't blame him for his decision process. I mean, like, just 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 a, just a bit about, yeah, we'll get into some more of that nitty gritty stuff a uh, little, little soon, I guess. It, yeah, so we, like, we'll, it couldn't we'll, end up worse than it already is, right? Yeah, so. pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. And also, I have to say this, Marcy, before we go, I, I go into the next part of the film <laughs> is. It, Jay Trevor Edmund, he has that 90s bo- teen boy haircut as yes. well. That we oh, know. yeah, the floppy hair. The, the floppy hair. Yeah, the <laughs> I mean, I've almost got that uh, hair now, but it's a bit too long. If we make it a bit shorter, we'll be the Devon Sour. <laughs> I definitely had that haircut at one point, for sure. <laughs> I wish I could have had that haircut, but I have no hair now. But, you know, that's beside the point. Um, Anyways, though. Kurt picks up Julie's body and he so they head 
he heads back to the army base. And listen, I can buy him going through the, the front gate with, and meeting that uh, guard the first time. Like, you know, mm. I can get that. But the guard, when he goes up to the front gate the second time, the guard again just lets oh, go right in. It's like, dude, you only just saw him a few hours ago. Like, aren't you a little bit suspicious that he's just come back so soon to the army base, even after oh, when his like, dad is not on the base anymore? <laughs> she's like slumped into his back mm-hmm. and everything too. It's like, this, this is, there's a lot of weird stuff going on there right there. They're just like, nah, whatever, sir. We're just going to suspend okay. our disbelief a little bit because <laughs> we know no military base would have that lax security. <laughs> exactly exactly and so he gets inside the hangar where the lab is and then he has a slight little run-in with Sinclair but luckily Sinclair doesn't manage to see him but we can see that she's obviously uh burning body parts with the incinerator in there so Kurt takes Julie's body to the lab where they looked at earlier gets her in there gets suited up and opens up the container with the 245 Chiroxin and manages to revive her. Uh, Julie at first is very disorientated at first, but then she doesn't realize that at first she's dead because she still reckons they're still on, she's still on the bike with him. And then soon she realizes they're at the base and she is asking like, what is going on? What is going on? But what they don't realize is, is that in the container, uh, there was a zombie and it has crawled out of the container and starts to attack him and it the design very was... sloppy on their on on his end like you, yes. you're supposed to sneak in there and not have anyone notice you were there but you're just leaving everything open and all over the place and i might mm. add julie's reaction when she wakes up is like me every week on the to be tuesdays podcast <laughs> <laughs> what is going on i don't get it man i gotta work out but anyways um <laughs> sorry <laughs> Well, I do love the cross-promotion of our other podcasts on this show, Marcy. But um, so, yes, they get attacked by another zombie. And I love the design mm. of this zombie in particular because it's like head is, it's grafted to its shoulder, like and its face is like pulled down. And then at some point during the scuffle with Kurt and Julie, it manages to get its head released from its shoulder and the skin just molds falls away and you can see its skull and everything and it is such a great design for a zombie and also kind of continues the trend of having like a a tar man-esque zombie Mm. in the story but i don't think this version is exactly that since it looks very different so they try to get away and they run into a guard but the zombie manages to kill the guard and then that alerts the entire base. And so everyone descends upon the lab. But Kurt and Julie manage to escape once again. This place is the worst. This is like the worst secured place in the world. Exactly, exactly. Like you, can, like you can say, like, as you said it before, Marcy, like with uh, Kurt leaving all doors and everything open. Like I can buy that because he is a distraught teen, so he's not thinking straight. But... You're right too, Button. Like, this is meant to be a high-class military base and the security is very... Not up to... It's not up to stuff. It's not up to stuff. Why would you not have, like, the best security set up if you've got, like, this zombie toxin shit? Like, come on, guys. 
<laughs> or just you know a guy at the gate who actually checks to make sure that everybody you're mm. bringing in on your motorcycle is alive mm. that would Instead be handy, just actually. waving everyone through right? <laughs> exactly some... exactly yeah <laughs> but also i liked the fact that as they're leaving and uh julie sees the zombie eating that guard's brain she like now that she knows she's been revived and that she's mm. dead she pretty much says to herself she says to Kurt, is that what I'll become? So she is terrified of what may happen. So, yeah, so they escape. And then, of course, uh, Kurt's dad, the colonel, comes back to the base and looks at the security footage, finds out that Kurt and Julie were there. So he sends his men out to go on the hunt throughout the city to find them. So we follow Kurt and Julie as they're riding around. Now, Julie is starting to get incredibly hungry to the point where it's becoming painful to her she needs to eat something so they decide to stop off at a corner store they go inside and julie does is grabbing everything off the shelves and is just eating down everything and that's where they're introduced to a gag in there a and... dumb shit ass gang i might add <laughs> exactly exactly which are the characters of mock and I'm probably going to butcher their names, so please forgive me. Uh, Mogo, Alicia, Alicia, Felipe, and and, uh, and Santos. So they're the gang that's inside the corner store. They have a bit of a run-in with Kurt. Things start to escalate, and the store, order, store owner tells them to get out. And during the while all this is happening, one of the members of the gang tries to rob the cash register, and one of them pulls a gun out, the store owner gets shot. The gang makes a break for it. But before they leave, I believe it's the character Philpe who gets bitten by Julie. And so they run off. And so do Julie and Kurt. They hear sirens coming. So they pick up the store owner. So they're going to take him to the hospital. The police come. The store owner's like, I'll, I'll go with them. I'll go with them. But they drive off with the police following suit. No matter how much food Julie is, try is trying to eat, like her hunger is just getting more and more intense. And during the drive as they're escaping, the store owner is getting a bit panicky. He wants to get, he wants to get out of, opens up the back of the van to signal the police for help. But the police accidentally shoot him in the head and kill him. And then, of course, Julie gets into the back of the van and starts eating on the store owner's brains. <laughs> and then the they get they stop into an alleyway the police corner them then they tried they open up the van and now the store owner has now become a zombie attacks one of the police officers and that's when colonel reynolds and his men uh show up they take out the store owner zombie Kurt and julie have actually gone down into the sewers and they're down there. Julie, once again, is getting very hungry. However, she finds out that another way to, to relieve herself from her hunger pains, and unfortunately, she doesn't have a belt nearby, so she can't tighten it up by one loop, so she's rid of it. <laughs> Thanks, Troll 2. <laughs> exactly, exactly. See, if she did have that, that would have made everything easier. But, mm -hmm. that, but what she decides, finds out, is if she causes self-harm to herself, like whether she cuts herself or pierces something into her skin, that actually re relieves the pain. And we see some pretty gruesome moments with her harming herself, including having a little, almost like a spring 
Just mm. j- jagging that into our arm and having it go around our skin, like some like that's the great thing about Rob, Brian User as a director is like when he shows gore in his films, like again, it's so creative and imaginative, but it just looks so painful when mm. you see it on screen as well. So Julie and Kurt, they have a bit of a fight. Julie just tells Kurt that it's his fault. And she, he should have just let her be dead. And then, of course, she runs to a bridge. Kurt tries to tell her to not to jump. She ends up jumping. And then Kurt goes down to the bottom of the ravine to try to find her. And then, of course, he runs into a homeless person named the Riverman, who's played by Basil Wallace. And they manage to find Julie in the ravine. And so they pick her up. And then that's when the gang... Finds her because at this point the uh Philippe is starting to get sicker and sicker and they want to take revenge on Julie and Kurt. So Kurt, Julie, and the Riverman decide to take shelter by hiding by going through a tunnel and finding the Riverman's hideout. So that's pretty much this is pretty much our middle <laughs> section of the film. And Button, your thoughts on this section. Oh, I really like this stuff. Um, I think it's really fun to kind of get the uh, view into the city around it, right, and get that flashback to the 90s where they're playing Street Fighter 2 and the 7-Eleven <laughs> and everything else. And I think, you know, you know, as you mentioned, with her kind of discovering the self-harm stuff, um, it is, you know, Yuzna really knows how to shoot that stuff, mm. um, both to make it, I think, to allow you to feel that pain, but also just to make it look good. Like, mm. you know, the, we, you obviously have intellectually understand, right? There is no way somebody's actually doing this. Um, but between the, the great effects work and, you know, him understanding how to get that shot done, right? It always looks good. And I think that's one of those things that really helps the movie. I, I know I've mentioned it a bunch, but I think it's just one of the things that the movie does so well is that, even the kind of outlandish stuff mm. looks real enough, mm. right? You know, when people talk a lot about like digital effects versus practical effects, um, I think this is a perfect case for practical effects, right? Mm. Just the the tactile nature of it, the fact that you can see that there's something, someone really there instead of this, you know, kind of weightless, mushy computer stuff. Um, it helps you buy it, right? Even though obviously um like the guy they run in the zombie they run into on the way out of the lab with the melted Mm. face and everything like clearly not actually real but it makes it lets you Mm. buy it um i think that's one of the things that's really cool we see into this excuse me in this section um i also really like the idea and i know that they've kind of explored it in some of the other films previously but i do like that we are getting a real conscious discussion of the idea that eating the brains is pain relief right it does Mm -hmm. That, that it's not just I'm hungry, right? There is something like deeper, more primal, more uh, something that is uh, leading to the the brain eating, right? It's not just I'm hungry and brains sound really good. Mm-hmm. And Marcy, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, look, I think it's a really good act because the stakes are raised now that she's been resurrected, they need to do something um and all the chaos caused i guess at the lab with no security 
Um, so yeah, like I think the stakes are on and like we know exactly like what's gonna happen to her, but I think um Kirk is kind of in denial and she's you know, how would you how do you deal with like being brought back in that way? Like I think her reactions are very natural. But yeah, I think that unique part of the film with like that hunger for brains and stuff, and she doesn't want to succumb to that. Like she you knows she struggles with it, and then of course she like self-harms herself and it's hard to watch it is very gruesome it's very well done the like the practical effects in this are fantastic and I, I think you're guaranteed like no matter what else in the film will look like like at least that stuff you know is going to probably look pretty pretty spectacular with a Brian Eusner film but yeah I think it it moves the story for like you're kind of not sure where it will go and then kind of it sets the scene for what the finale will be but um yeah, there's a lot of gruesome gore. Um, the the shop owner, as he becomes a zombie, it's like bleh, so mm. gross. But yeah, it's it's kind of like um, a lot of tragic circumstances, and the Riverman kind of gets brought into this. And this this like gang, it's like guys, maybe you should just fuck off and not get involved in this. It's like no, well, well karma's a bitch, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But also, like, I think what's, like, again, like you say, it kind of raises the stakes of the story and what uh, Julie is going through in this section. Like, again, with her self-harming herself and mutilating parts of her body so she could relieve herself of that pain. But also we kind of see how their relationship goes as well. Because, again, Julie just because of everything that's happening to her, she, she wishes that Kurt just let her stay dead. And of course you can kind of question whether Kurt did the right thing or not, but again, it's young love, young teenage love. So can't, when you're <laughs> driven by that sort of desire, like again, it is, you don't think rationally. And so you can yeah. kind of get where he is. But also at the same time, I can definitely see how, I guess in today's context, you can definitely very much question uh, Kurt's motives as well. Like almost being like this obsessive dude about this. It's, it's, I think what? it's kind of obsessive, but also like, I don't know what the right word would be, but it's like, it's kind of creepy, I guess, um, mm. in a yeah. way. Like it's, it's too... Oh, like he feels something that's maybe too much and he does something that obviously he can't have any of her consent to do um, mm. because she's dead. But yeah, I, I think it kind of brings to light a, a little bit of like some toxic relationship traits as well as mm. whatever, what else it does. Yeah. Well, it kind of hit... the... No, go ahead, Bob. I was going to say, I think they set the stage for it well in with, you know, even though the, the whole thing of, you know, the moving and the big, you know, oh, I hate you so much, Dad, you're ruining my life, uh, that sort of stuff. Like, it at least provides some context, right, so that that way when he talks, you know, when he's uh, got the dead body, right, and he's saying, like, I'm not going to let you leave me too. Like, you know, I think we all remember being teenagers and making a lot of really dumb decisions that we, you know, wouldn't make nowadays because we were mm -hmm. young and stupid and thought it was so important that we did x y or z um so i think it works like it, you know obviously it's not great <laughs> not a good look for anyone but um you know like i feel like at least they they give you enough 
there that you like can understand where he's coming from, even if you don't mm. agree with him. And, you know, obviously, as we all can tell, like not a good decision for anyone involved for him to have done mm. this. But like, it's also not not so outrageous to think that this teenage kid who thinks his mm. life is ending, he's going to go set out on this new life with his girlfriend and she dies. It's not outrageous to me to think that he's going to make a really mm. bad decision or series of decisions mm. to attempt to find some solace, some, something good to come out. Mm. Of. Um, mm. But also on that note, I think, you know, one of the things that really does work about this section is Melinda Clark's performance. Mm. I think she's really mm. good and yeah. overall in the whole film, but I think particularly right in this section, I think is kind of the most difficult part, mm. right? Where she has to play this in a, in a very real way. Otherwise I think it just doesn't work. Right. And it becomes uh, especially when you think about the stuff in the like the 7-Eleven or the mm. you know whatever the convenience store is where she's ripping into everything there is a, a layer of intentional comedy there but you know if she was not as good and not as believable in this then you would also have that unintentional comedy mm. that like oh god this is so bad and you know and everything else and she manages to you know, move past that. Um, and I think that's a really definitely a testament to her mm. um, as a performer as well. And I think that that's one of the really good things about this section is she does get some time to kind of show off her actual skills as an, as a, you know, as an actor, because for the rest of the movie, she is a little more one note as far as like her emotions, but it's definitely a much more physical mm. performance really through the rest of the movie. Definitely. Definitely. Also uh, two things uh, I forgot to, mentioned before also like in this section we also find out that uh colonel reynolds had is about to be replaced by lieutenant sinclair and she's going to take over the whole mm. operation as well and also i have i i made a mistake it's not felipe who's the one who got bitten it is uh mogo who's the one who got yeah. bitten so i apologize for the uh mix-up so i <laughs> there but uh from here though we uh, follow uh, Julie, Kurt, and the Riverman down into the sewer, and they go to the Riverman's little house that he's built for himself. And I got to say, though, that um, Basil Wallace, who plays the Riverman, he is legit great in this movie. Oh, like, definitely, yeah. He he gives a really strong performance, and I really like the sort of the scene where uh, the Riverman he has like this coin, and he gives it to Kurt, and he pretty much tells him to kind of do almost like a pay it forward typing like he's going to help him out but instead of him helping him out he gives him the coin to remind him you when you leave this place you go out there and help somebody else as well like it's a great little scene in a film like this and he's mm. and i love that like we get a bit of time with the characters in this section of the film with the relationship between them and of course uh julie again is still mutilating herself and but she's hiding it from kurt at some points i'm thinking like kurt you, i don't know whether you're just oblivious to what's going on or i think he's I, in denial <laughs> yeah i think you're probably right i think he's kind of more in denial that she is mm. mutilating herself because there is a moment when they do start to make out and as this is happening there's like a shot of where mm. uh julie has a, a holding a piece of a shot of glass in her head and it goes right through her head as they mm. as she's uh as they're making love so as this is going on, uh, the gang go down to the sewers. They go to find them. And during this point, uh, Julie goes off on her own somewhere. 
And that's when the the gang show up. They uh, take, they grab Kurt and the Riverman. They have them hostage. Santos, uh, the leader, wants uh wants Julie to come out and show where she is, or she or they will kill uh, Kurt and the Riverman. And then this is probably, I would say, the most iconic scene in the film is so Julie opens up the door to one of the rooms. And she comes out full blown with piercings and metal going through parts mm-hmm. of her body because in that while she was gone, she just mutilated herself to such an extreme nature that she literally has nails and spikes and mm-hmm. other things just coming out of everywhere, out of her nipples. Just it's like going all over the place. All these, uh, <laughs> all these things, and you see. It's such an iconic moment that they used that design for the poster mm. from the film. And when you see her, it's such a unique design and it's so startling. But as I said earlier, like you want to be scared, but you're also kind of slightly aroused when you see her mm-hmm. in that form. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It is one of the most memorable, like just looks in any film and yeah, no wonder they used it for the poster to entice everyone to watch it. Like it's it's iconic. It's one of the hottest looks ever, even it, though we kind of feel bad in saying that because she had to mutilate herself to kind of not eat brains, but exactly, exactly. But also <laughs> as she's doing this, she also you kind of get the sense that she kind of likes it as well because when she sees uh Santos and his gang, she like licks her lips as mm. well. So it's kind of a you know, she likes the pain that she's doing to herself, but at the same time, it's like, I'm going to eat these guys' brains. So mm-hmm. basically, Santos, I don't know what he's what's going through his mind. I mean, to be fair, we're probably all Santos in this moment where it's like, oh, hello. Um, <laughs> so he basically is like, all right, I'm going to, you, you're coming with me. So basically, he takes Julie off to assault her. And while the the other gang and Kurt and the Riverman are back in the sewer. Again, Mogo is getting more and more sicker. And that's where they hear Santos's screams. And that's when Julie comes back out. And again, how memorable the gore of this film is. Mm. She has Santos's head, but his spine is mm-hmm. pulled out of his body, but yeah. still attached to the rest it's of It's an the- incredible view. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they all start to freak out. And <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> and uh, Philippe sh- shoot, tries to shoot Julie, but she kills him by biting his lip off. And again, it's another great mm-hmm. gruesome effect with that. Uh, Alicia tries to escape, but Julie scratches her leg. Kurt stops Julie from killing her. But now Mogo has now turned into a zombie and he attacks and kills Alicia. And that's when all the gang start to come back to life as zombies, particularly Mogo, because again, his the designs of the zombies mm. are just so amazing. Yeah. And so Riverman and Kurt and Julie, they barricade themselves, but the zombies are trying to break in. Kurt tells Riverman to take Julie out of there and he'll follow suit and he'll distract the zombies while they make an escape. Uh, so he so he manages to barricade as much as he he can before they break in. So he runs off and then when he goes to 
uh, the ladder, which is going to take them out of there. But that's where he finds Julie munching down on Riverman's brains. And at this point, she's now become full zombie mm. mode. And it is, a, again, a very tragic scene because Riverman is such a great character that it is a shock when Kurt mm. stumbles upon Julie eating his brains. And again, she lets out a scream of anguish. He's pretty much defeated. But, and the zombies charge in to get him, but luckily his dad and the army show up. They tranquilize the zombies. Kurt just moves out of the way and lets them do the same to Julie. So that's pretty much this act of the film before we get to the final act of the story. Uh, Marcy, your thoughts on this section of the film? Uh, I think it's great. It is so gruesome. It And like you said, like when we realize like Julie is just fully just about gone in terms of like being a zombie like it's kind of heartbreaking because you're kind of wanting the best for poor julie but yeah like the effects are just so good they're memorable like zombies it's memorable deaths and kills and it's so gruesome but again i think the big part of this is that big reveal for julie and she just looks badass like Mm. i want to see julie join the fucking avengers or something (laughs) (laughs) like she's just so cool but yeah it's um it's again it's the moment shocking because when you first watch it that's not what you're really expecting um but then to see like what happens to i think it's santos with like his fucking spine coming from his head and it's the the zombies are just so creative and gross Mm. And, and again it does give you that sort of heartbreak because riverman was such an interesting character um, it was a small a small role, but, like, I think that was a great performance. And you kind of get the hint, like, maybe he's dealt with zombies before, which I thought was a little interesting little nod in there. Um, but, yeah, it's, like, it's a very just shocking all out, like, let's just go a bit insane right now. And, of course, you know, towards that end, we get the military are back because, of course, um, and you just know, like, they're ready to just continue with what they were doing, clean up the little mess and be done with it definitely definitely and uh Barton, your thoughts uh i think it's I, I mean obviously how can you not enjoy uh the section where sexy sexy scary zombie shows mm-hmm. up and uh you know we get a lot of gore um i think the thing that's really important though with the entire thing with Riverman, right is he is really their first ally and mm. when julie you know when kurt sees that julie has you know gone after him um I think that's where you know the movie starts to make its turn right of his realization Mm. to an extent that like you know hey oh shit what have i really done Mm. because she can't control herself right you know there's there's only so much that the that that self-harm aspect can control it uh and can can allow her to control herself um Mm. and i think it you know we we kind of touched on it briefly while we were talking uh at, at the beginning uh, of our discussion, but I think it is really interesting the way that whether it's a, a fully intentional commentary or not, um, I think there is a lot that really is uh, reflected with the idea of self-harm, sometimes mm. being an outlet for folks uh, who have a lot of intrusive thoughts, who are trying to deflect pain elsewhere uh, and everything else. And I think it is a really interesting context to have that discussion you know obviously it's not a a full-throated discussion but mm, it's I also definitely don't think it's entirely coincidental yeah that 
it's going on. It, it's, there's definitely something there because as we see, like she's she's hurting herself to stop that pain, but at the end, it doesn't do anything because that pain is still there, and that's something that she will have to deal with. And you right. look at that if you're trying to harm yourself to stop pain, it's it's not actually going to stop it until you address your problems and I I feel like that's definitely there along with um like we said the commentary with the military and what they how they act but I also think there's a commentary on um young love as well that it can be very intense and maybe we shouldn't let it get that intense when you're like 17. Look I'm not going anywhere without you. Uh-uh. What I see. No. Hey, let's go. What I see. It's a yeah. clever movie, uh, apart from being fucking awesome. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so we get to the final act of the film. So we see uh, Kurt talking to his dad and they have a little bonding moment there. And Kurt's dad, uh, the Colonel, apologizes for not being more there for his son. And he wants to spend more time with Kurt from there on Yeah, out. it takes that for the dad to like want to give a shit about his kid. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, so Kurt hears the zombies calling out. So he goes off to find them and he finds a lot of them are all being experimented on. And again, as we kind of saw earlier with that very first zombie, we, this is definitely compared to, like I said, compared to the previous two films that do pretty much portray the zombies as villains. This one here goes all out to make you feel yeah sorry for them especially in these scenes in, where in this being context because you know nobody should have to go through that even if you are a mindless zombie and as we know there's still something in there and it's very it is very horrific to see them all like that mm. as well because you know the, as we find like i think i can't remember if the previous films but to pretty much kill a zombie in this they have to be completely burnt i think that was what they did in the first yeah they 
Oh, yeah, they did for uh, the first one because that's pretty much it. Like the zombies, mm. what's interesting about because the zombies is if you return. leave your hand behind, your hand is still going to be a zombie and move around and cause damage. And we see this here as well with like moving body part attachments. But sorry, you continue with that part. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say like, yeah, well, I was going to say like with the, what's it, again, what's interesting about the zombies in the Return of the Living Dead series or at mm. least what they establish in the first film and they've continued so far with uh in the series is that the zombies in this film are oh in the series are very hard to kill like to the point where they basically can't die and the only way you can ever really truly kill them is to incinerate the body but again brian user kind of changes that for this one so the zombies can die a little bit more easier in this version but yeah well from here like i said we see that kurt sees the zombies getting experimented on and he finds julie and he's shocked by the state that she's now in and of course he finds out about sinclair's plan to use the zombies as weapons and then we discover that riverman is now a zombie mm. it is now being put inside the ectoskeleton suit that sinclair has created and you could tell like he is in a massive amount of pain being inside that suit. And also being a zombie, it's also, again, another startling image when we see him in that form, but mm. also the design, especially with him in that ectoskeletal suit, is, re is really impressive. Mm. So Kurt is, uh, realizes the error of his ways with all this, so he just tries to, uh, he goes to try to open up the door to Julie's cage, he knocks out a scientist. He manages to get her out. Riverman goes crazy and attacks. Again, shit security. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like things are really escalating and the army is just, again, that could also be a, de a deliberate uh, point that Brian uses is trying to make in this film in terms of the army are a bunch of fuck ups, which again is kind of a continuing mm. theme that has gone on through the previous entries of this franchise, even all the way back in the first film where James Caron pretty much says like the only reason the the containers of 245 trioxin got to the supply warehouse is because of an army fuck up. So mm -hmm. it kind of continues <laughs> that trend in this film. So we're kind of seeing that in full display with the, with the soldiers just completely failing at what they're doing. So uh, Riverman, I said, goes crazy. He attacks quite a few of the soldiers and then he sets his sights on Sinclair, but a doctor shoots Riverman with the gun. Riverman manages to open the door and kill the doctor. However, Sinclair, she shoots at Riverman, but it and the contain all the containers of 2-4 trioxin fall over during the during the attack, and more zombies start coming at it. Again, this is where the practical effects go in the full overdrive because we're seeing so many different unique and scary looking designs for the zombies. And one of the zombies grabs one of the doctors and pulls them into the container with them. Uh, Kurt manages to reason with a zombie Riverman to get them to open up the, the door to the lab because they're all locked in there and they mm. can't get out. As Riverman is doing that, Sinclair once again keeps shooting at Riverman, but she ends up being grabbed by a, 
a zombie and then she ends up being killed. And then that's when all the zombies start to break out of the lab and they descend upon the base. Uh, Colonel Reynolds tries to look for his son while all this is happening, while all the other soldiers are trying to take out all the zombies. But then, as all this is happening, as Kurt and Julia try to make their escape, a zombie jumps out and bites Kurt. So realizing now that very soon he's going to be turning into one of the living dead, Kurt and Julie go to the incinerator room. Uh, Kurt's dad manages to find them and tries to open the door to the incinerator room. But Kurt tells him that it's too late for him, that this is the only way. Julie says to Kurt, oh, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. And Kurt pretty much says, we are Julie. So, So Kurt and Julie get inside the incinerator they turn it on, they embrace each other, they kiss, and they get burned up inside the incinerator. And that's pretty much where the the film ends. Barton, your thoughts on this final section of Return of the Living Dead 3? Uh, I mean, obviously, the, all the stuff with the zombie escape and mayhem is uh, lots of fun. And, and while the ending itself is obviously... I think, you know, almost as soon as he decides to turn her into a zombie, you know that they're both probably gone at the end. She definitely is, though. Mm. Um, and, you know, this idea of this kind of doomed romance um, and lovers, I, I think it's, you know, again, it, to some extent simple, uh, but again, but it's it's kind of the journey, not the destination on this one. Mm. Um, I think it is just about spending the time with these characters and everything. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's a satisfying conclusion, right? I think generally speaking, anything much other than this would have really kind of just been a cop-out or like sequel bait. Uh, I think one of the nice things about this, right, is obviously there's still stuff going on that could allow for a sequel, but um, instead of, you know, teasing any sort of continuance or whatever, you know, we kind of end everything with our characters here. The world is still going to go on without them. But the movie is is really solely focused on their story. And that's something that I really like. Obviously, you know, we've talked about a lot, uh, a little bit about kind of the difference in how things were was in uh, at the time this was made versus how things are now, right? And if this were made today, absolutely there would be, you know, either Kurt, you know, the movie ends with Kurt uh, having to unfortunately kill Julie and you know, swearing vengeance against the U.S. military or. Uh, you know, oh, we see that, you know, something of Julie's has survived the fire, everything like that. Um, I really like how it does just stay this very contained, really small story. I think that zombie films generally, in my personal opinion, work the best when they are a very small contained story that focus mm -hmm. really on, you know, a, you know, three, four people maybe at the most. Um, mm -hmm. Anything bigger than that, it starts to get a little messy, I think, and you get away from the point of being able to provide interesting stories, interesting social commentary, um, interesting discussions, uh, certainly about like what is the nature of life and what is uh, humanity and all these other things that you get uh, kind of inherently in zombie films. But I think the bigger the cast is, the bigger the story is, the more it has to become about spectacle. Um, and I think that's one of the great things that even going back to that 68 uh, original, Night of the Living Dead, right, where we really see the true beginning uh, essentially of what we consider the zombie genre at the end of the day that is ultimately a very small story right it's it's mm. Dwayne and Barbara mm. uh, you know other characters kind of 
coming in and out, but it's really following them. And so I, I, I just, I'm, I enjoy that uh, the movie has that smaller focus. And mm. there's that, well, it's not a happy ending. I think it's the right ending yeah. as well. And it's certainly the ending that you are expecting. Mm. And I don't think it lets you down in your expectations either. Like it's not, you're not like, oh, well, you know, yeah, I guess, okay, fine. That was what I was thinking was going to happen. I, th- I think they do a really good job of kind of landing the plane on mm. everything. Mm. And uh, Marcy, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I agree with um, what Barton has said. And yeah, it's it's the right ending for the film and it works extremely well. Like you definitely want to see one last bit of mayhem at the really badly secured military base. <laughs> um, but, but again, like you want to see that happen because I don't think you're on board with the zombies being used as like weapons in this way. And just to hop back, like, I think that, yeah, you really need to be incinerated because we saw uh, Sarah Douglas's character, I think it was her, um, incinerating the zombie body parts. So I think, yeah, it's like, we understand, like, the zombies are ridiculous. Like, if you leave a foot behind, the foot's going to still be moving. Um, mm. So it, it's clearly, like, a, um, it's not a great weapon and it's just that you want to get out. Um, and I do think... I, I think from what I read, um, Brian Usner wanted to do a follow-up where mm-hmm. the zombies, uh, after what's happened, have pretty much like run rampant on the city. But obviously that was something that never happened. Um, but I think that would have kind of changed how this was because it is such a small contained little story. Um, I mean, clearly the city has no one in it, uh, <laughs> as we see through the film. Um, and maybe that's why the security was so lax because like no one lives in where they are because it's so empty <laughs> but it just adds to this creepiness i think though but yeah it it it's the right ending it's a good ending it's it's a bit of a sad ending because after spending the film with like julie and kirk like he just wanted good things for this, these poor teenagers um but that mm. was not going to happen but yeah overall i think all the acts i think complement each other very well and it's just um yeah it just all comes together in a in a nice piece and we get I think one of the most underrated uh, horror films of the 90s. Indeed, indeed. And I think as well with this last section of the film in particular, it really, again, emphasises the plight that these zombies go through with them being experimented on. Mm. And in a way, because earlier in the film, and I only just, it just occurred to me just right now, how one of the main reasons why Julie and Kurt ended up going to the army base anyway is because they... Had they thought that animals were being mm. experimented on at the base. So in a way, like it's kind of used this film kind of not only being a condemnation on the military with the army just being complete fuck ups during the course of this, <laughs> of this uh, film, but also like using the zombies as kind of a metaphor for animal experimentation as well oh, yeah that's and- definitely in there i mean i think it's like animal or even human like testing mm. because i'm sure there's been illegal things of that and whatnot mm. in my final little just talk before i did want to add i think judd said it best in pet cemetery sometimes dead is better indeed indeed <laughs> but again like i think that's one of the great things about this film because again this last half really escalates we get the mm. full extent of uh kurt and julie's relationship and again it just ends on a tragic note with them incinerating each other so that they and, but at the same time you can definitely understand their reasonings but mm. also like you say Marcy you're absolutely right that 
Brian Usner definitely wanted to do a follow-up that pretty much took place immediately after the events of this film with now that the zombies had got out of the containers and were storming the base, they were going to storm uh, the city as well. But of course that wouldn't happen and we wouldn't actually get another sequel in this franchise until 12 years later. But that being said though, that's the thing. You don't really need to tell more of at least this specific story. I think it wraps itself mm. up pretty well. And yeah, I think it's this whole section, like there's a great amount of gore, uh, the performances once again still continue to be strong and also just like the designs of the zombies and the makeup effects mm. are just really just fantastic like yeah there were definitely moments throughout this film with certain effects that look a little cheap i will admit especially <laughs> when you see certain characters heads or uh in the case of julie they're using a doll to throw off a bridge which is my favorite thing in any movie ever uh, <laughs> but it still works within the confines of the film and it, it it's just this this whole section in the film is just really well done but um but i guess that could be a wrap on this conversation of return of the living dead free and uh button your final thoughts on this film overall well as i said i i i found more to like in this film every time I see it. Um, mm. And, you know, my most recent viewing was no exception. Uh, you know, kind of on the note of all of the of the fact that it is in this Return of the Living Dead universe and Yuzna wanted to make a sequel, um, mm. it almost feels like a disservice that this is Return of the Living Dead 3. Because really mm. outside of the Trioxin name drop, you could retitle this movie to something else entirely different. Mm. And, mm. and I think the movie would be better served by that in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, just because I think it, it, you know, as we've talked about already, really doesn't have a ton in common mm. with the first two films, um, certainly not in tone and execution in the same way, um, since it is so much of a smaller story too, right? The first two movies mm. definitely are bigger uh, zombie outbreaks. And this one is really like mm. focused on one person for, you know, 90% of its runtime. Nonetheless, I'm very glad it got made. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think uh, it, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know, on any given day, I would say this is my favorite of that franchise. You know, that or the first one probably just depends on the mood I'm in. Mm. Um, mm. But I, I just really like this movie a lot. And um, I'm really glad that we got the opportunity to talk about it, um, especially uh, getting some different perspectives and uh, making mm. me think about things that I hadn't thought about before and that, you know, uh, it's October right now, so I'm absolutely going to be watching a ton of horror movies. Um, I think I'm going to have to pop this one back into the rotation and give this another watch <laughs> um, after we've discussed it, because I think that it's um, it's a you know it is it's a really good movie. I, you know, it's it obviously has its its downsides, and you know, it's it's not a perfect film by any stretch. But I think especially if you kind of want to come to it on its own terms, um, I think it's a really great movie. And mm. uh, yeah, and I, I just uh, I would like to see whether it's in the Return of the Living Dead franchise, whether it's tied to a franchise at all, I really want to see more stories like this in the future that kind of give you a little, hey, you get a little bit of the, the cool zombie outbreak stuff that you want from a zombie movie, uh, but you do get a really nice, uh, personal, interesting story as well. Mm. Um, mm. And I, yeah, it's just really, because <laughs> I really do love this movie. <laughs> and uh, Marcy, your final thoughts on Return of the Living Dead 3? 
yeah i i do love this movie i think it's a great film it it's still as good as it was the first time i watched it to the most recent time i watched it and i don't look if i did not discover this film when i did i don't think i'd be the raging horror fan i am today so credit where credit is due um but yeah look it's it's fun it's it's a standalone film it really is like like you said it doesn't it doesn't need that title um it, it's really its own thing you could have just called it julie and that would have been fine i think maybe the name alone probably was something like oh this might get more people's attention on it or you know whatever the case would be but um i think it's a great film it's a very different and at least different for the time and unique kind of zombie film that it, it plays by its own rules and um yeah it, it really makes the most of I guess you know that short time to shoot it um smaller budget um just having some great like practical effects and just some of the craziest zombies you'll ever see but it's definitely got a lot of heart and meaning in there as well so um if you haven't seen this before fucking go watch it if you have seen it before fucking watch it again it's great oh yeah yeah definitely <laughs> definitely, definitely won't regret watching it no Mm, definitely definitely i I, i'm just gonna say right now i think return of the living dead free is definitely one of the more underrated films that came well underrated horror films that came out in the 90s like i know a lot of people out there kind of shit on the 90s as a decade for horror especially the first half of the decade uh but to be honest though and like i'm a fan of 90s horror i think that decade in particular is so underrated it's very underrated and as someone who's specifically watching 90s horror um <laughs> for my 31 days of horror like people shit on 90s horror especially like you said like before scream i suppose but mm. it, there's uh, fucking good movies in there this is one of them and sorry i keep cutting you off feed <laughs> oh, that's all right but i mean this is a decade where like at least the first half of this decade where we had not only this film, but other great classic horror films like Candyman and Braindead, mm. Army of Darkness. And also, this is the first half of this decade, also had The Silence of the Lambs, still the only horror film to have won Best Picture at the Oscars. So, you know, this is one of the many reasons why I think the 90s in particular is so underrated when it comes to horror films. And for me, one of the films that comes to my mind when I think of that is Return of the Living mm. Dead free. And I agree with you, Barton. Like, this could be a film that could easily have not been called Return mm. of the Living Dead free. Like, I know it was developed to actually be a sequel. This wasn't a case where uh, they had a separate script and retroactively made it into a sequel, like, you know, many of the Hellraiser sequels kind of were. Right. But that, this was one that was developed entirely on its own. But I think Brian Musner has stated that he does regret not coming up with a better title than Return of the Living Dead Free, mainly because it's just too long of a title. And he even thought about, he kind of wished maybe of just changing it to Curtain Julie mm. or even uh, Mortal Zombie is another one that he admits would have been a better title, which I can totally understand because, yeah, I, I still classify this as a sequel because it, it is a sequel. Well, but, yeah, it literally is. But Yeah, it literally is, but it works so well as a standalone. And like I said, you don't even... Well, that's also another interesting thing about at least the first three Return of the Living Dead films is that all three of these films are so distinct in their mm. approaches 
to their stories and also their tones as well that you don't even necessarily need to see one or the other mm. to enjoy it because they all work on their own as standalone. It's like, yeah, they have links between each other with the two, four, five trioxide and little references here and there, but they are essentially just standalone films. And uh, Return of the Living Dead Free in particular works especially well in that regard, especially mm. being a much more serious and more darker mm. entry in the series but at the say at but that being said as well as that is in that regard the film at the end of the day is a tragic love story and it actually treats that aspect extremely well and its two leads are great uh melinda mm. clark in particular is especially fantastic and it doesn't surprise me at all now sort of looking up before that she actually won the fangoria chainsaw award for best actress for a performance yeah. in this film, and well-deserved, I will say. Um, Not a surprise. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, and also I would even say it's even up there as one of Brian Usner's best works as well. So I think it's a great sequel. It's just a great all-around horror film and an underrated one that I honestly think that everyone should check out. I think everyone will definitely be pleasantly surprised if they've never seen this film before. Definitely go check it out because it's a great, great sequel and definitely one of the high marks of uh, the Return of the Living Dead series. But uh, well, yeah, I, I think guess... all three of us oh, go ahead. said we yes. saw this. I was going to say, I think all three of us said that we saw this one in first out of the Living Dead series, right? Mm. Well, I or saw it second. A, yeah, second for me. Yeah, mm. yeah. It was second for me because I say to this in a previous episode that I kind of watched the series out of order. So I watched number two first, then this one, and then finally the first one. So and that's kind of the interesting thing. But rel- but you're right, though. Like, relatively, we all three of us saw this one roughly the first or second mm. within the franchise. Yeah. And I think, it, I you know, the, the good thing about that standalone-ish nature while still tying in is you know, if, if somebody is not necessarily interested in seeing the other films, or also I would say didn't love the other films, I think there is still a lot mm. to see here, a lot that's interesting. Definitely worth checking out, um, kind of regardless of your relationship mm. with the franchise as a whole. Mm. Mm. Definitely. But uh, I guess that could be a wrap on the, this episode of Bead versus the Living Dead. And thank you both Marcy and Barton for both coming back on the show and talking this and talking about this film with me. You're welcome. Absolutely. Indeed, indeed. And also, I want to thank everyone for tuning into this episode of the show, or just the entire month in celebration of the 55th anniversary of Night of the Living Dead. I want to thank all you listeners for tuning into not only these three episodes that are on the first three films of Return of the Living Dead, but also all the awesome bonus episodes I released in between those episodes, and as well as the debut launch of my spin-off Friday the 13th podcast that I co that I'm co-hosting with my friend Stephen T. Boltz, who's also a mutual friend of Marcy's as well. Um <laughs> and uh, also I'll take this moment to thank you, Marcy, for also designing the uh the logo for the podcast as well. Oh you're welcome. I hope that uh you like it and everyone likes it and it's as uh it's as good as the podcast. Indeed, indeed. It is a great logo. And of course, you've done the all the artwork for not only yes. this show, but for uh, the other podcasts as well. So also, again, thank you for everyone for even tuning into that debut episode of Beat and Steve versus Camp Crystal Lake. But now we're at the tail end of the Halloween season. 
at the time of this re episode's release, it's October 29th. It's the Halloween season's almost over. It's also uh, my birthday when the, this episode drops. So indeed. happy birthday to me. Someone, uh, could someone happy. send me a Julie zombie? That'd be great. Yes. <laughs> well, also I happy. Think the movie released on October 29th as well. So oh, really? I will have. Let me have a look because. Oh, it is. This, though, technically, this is... we're celebrating the film's 30th anniversary today. So, along I with was... my 21st birthday. Exactly. Nudge, nudge. See, Marcy. See, it, it was it, it's fate, Marcy, that you and this movie were just meant to be part of each other's lives. We you... we are just bonded for life. Exactly. Yeah. You were born on this day, and it was released on this day, so it all makes total sense. But <laughs> but as I was saying before, sorry, <laughs> and also happy birthday for today, Marcy. Um, <laughs> at least at the time of the release of this episode. Uh so yeah, that is the end of this. Uh, celebration month for the 55th anniversary of night of the living dead i hope you all enjoyed it however though it's not the end of the celebration just yet mm -hmm. because i had something up my sleeve i've been keeping quiet for a little bit at least at the time we recorded this episode but i could finally talk about it now so i have one more bonus episode of the podcast to release for this month and it's going to be released on halloween so you'll have to stay tuned for that but the question is though what is this bonus episode going to be on well it's a very exciting one i might add because for this final bonus episode of the podcast this month i sat down and interviewed john a russo the co-writer of the original night of the living dead so that is going to be the final awesome. boat Yes. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. It is. And uh, I'm very, I, I wanted to keep quiet on it for a little bit because I wanted to make sure it all worked out. And he was, his schedule was free to, for the interview. It took a couple of weeks, but we managed to do it. So yes, that is going to be the final bonus episode for this month. And, and it will be released on Halloween. And I think it will be the perfect way to end mm. this anniversary month for Night of the Living Dead. So stay tuned for that in a few days' time for that bonus episode. So, but before we wrap up the podcast uh, today, uh, Marcy, where can people find you on the internet this week? Yes, well, first of all, uh, congratulations on your awesome bonus episodes for this month. And of course, for getting to chat to John A. Russo, and I can't wait to listen to it. But yes, you can uh, find me and uh, all the stuff that I do, whether it's reviews or podcasts or whatever I've got energy for, uh, head to supermarcy.com. Uh, and if you want to follow me personally, I'm under supermarcy at everything. And you'll probably just find me on the socials just singing Beads praises because I'm so proud of everything he's no. achieved so far with this podcast. And it's absolute pleasure to have been brought back for a movie that was released on my birthday uh, this episode is coming out on my birthday, and I get to chat to two very awesome friends. So, oh, thank you, Marcy. Awesome. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, see, see, Bartney, if you didn't tell me that the the movie came out on October 29, 30 years ago, I wouldn't have like I would not have been realized that I'm actually technically celebrating the film's 30th anniversary, <laughs> and also <laughs> it was released on your birthday too, Marcy. So. Amazing! I I don't know how I never knew that. 
exactly and also kind of sad i just found out (laughs) but that's why it it was fate marcy this it it was fate that these that movie was meant to turn you into a horror fan (laughs) it it totally was totally was 100 exactly exactly (laughs) and uh but where could people find you on the internet this week uh if they are interested in doing so they can follow me on twitter uh, at Barton Roberts or on Instagram at Beluga James. And yeah, just uh, thanks for having me on again. It was great getting to celebrate uh, both Marcy's birthday and the anniversary of such a uh, an important touchstone film in our lives. So uh, thank you very much. And hopefully we can all get together again to discuss something fun soon. Oh, oh I'm definitely sure we definitely. will. <laughs> oh, definitely we will. We'll organize something, whether it's something for my podcast or the spinoff show or one of the other shows we do over at Super Podcast or even your uh, solo show after Dark Marcy. We'll definitely figure something out for sure. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> we will be podcasting. Well, I think the three of us will be podcasting a few more times, definitely. I've got some That's ideas and we'll definitely have to talk about that in the coming weeks. So, yeah. Definitely, definitely. Excellent. And, uh, and if people want to find me personally, you can find me on all the socials under Beachamine on Twitter slash X. I might as well say that now. Uh, or Blue Sky, if you're a member on there, and also on Facebook as well. And you can also find me at Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash Beachamine. And of course, you can find all my work and all the other pod- podcasts I co-host with Super Marcy over at the Super Network at supermarcy.com. And in terms of Bean versus the Living Dead itself, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at twitter.com slash VSTLD, and as well as Blue Sky at under VSTLD. And yeah, you can listen to the show on all podcast streaming networks everywhere. So definitely give it a review or a like if you have been listening. And if you do give a review, I will make sure to read it on the show and promote you, I guess. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> but anyway, so, but uh, once again, thank you for everyone for tuning in this episode and stay tuned on Halloween for my special bonus episode with John A. Russo. So stay tuned for that. And also keep a lookout in two weeks time on the next episode of the show, I'm going to be tackling the next two entries of the Return of the Living Dead franchise with the Sci-Fi Channel TV movies Return of the Living Dead Necropolis and Return of the Living Dead Rave to the Grave. So stay tuned for that episode and I'll see you all next time, everyone. See everyone. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beat vs. the Living Dead. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player of choice. Keep up on all updates of the show on the official Twitter account at BeadVSTLD. The music for this show was brought to you by Denno. See you next time, everyone. Goodbye.